Hello and welcome to Sons of Thunder, the podcast where three friends with an unhealthy appetite for putting their lives at risk talk about why God still loves them, apparently. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you? I'm great. Tops. <laughs> <laughs> Any idea what your, uh, your worst risk was that you've taken? Saying yes to being on a podcast. Although this was your idea. No, this, is, this isn't really... I don't, is this a risk? I no. I stepped out in uh, in faith once and asked my darling to marry me. Oh, big risk. Oh, Great dividends. Yeah. She said yes! <laughs> Father Dave? Uh, I've taken far too many risks, mostly involving walking through mountains by myself in the snow. Um, some of them probably shouldn't be repeated because my mother was never meant to know about them. <laughs> <laughs> There's something quite glorious about walking across mountains by yourself, though. In a snowstorm at night time when it's minus nine yeah, in a foreign country. So. Good. No. And when you can't find the hut you're meant to be trying to find to sleep in at night. Uh-huh. And you end up finding an old horse float in the middle of nowhere and sleeping in that in the middle uh-huh. of the minus nine. It was fun. I had to uh, use a gas. It's not often you see a horse float and think, thank goodness. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, that, that, that was last year I was in New Zealand. I had a few days hiking by myself and... It was snowing so heavily I couldn't find the track I was meant to take to find the hut that I was going to sleep in. Managed to find another farmer's hut like they use up in the high country. Completely locked up, no way I could get into it. But he had a horse float, which he used as a tool shed. Uh, so I had to sort of burrow myself into the corner of that and sleep the night. And the next morning, my boots were frozen solid. I had to use a gas burner to melt them before I could get them on. <laughs> lucky lucky you taking them off. <laughs> yes, I hadn't thought of that till now. Yeah, good point. Well, I think mine would be probably deciding to walk around the world. Other okay, than that, you other win. Than that, when I was seven, on so I grew up on Flinders Island out in Bass Strait, and when I was seven, there was a, the tide was out, and so I was able to walk around the rocks on a headland, and so I went around exploring around the rocks, and occasionally a wave would come in, jump up on the rocks, you know, out of the way, and but I found a sea cave. So if you walk around far enough at low tide, there is a little sea cave there. And I walked up into this sea cave and just as a seven-year-old would, started playing up there. I thought it was awesome. I am a pirate and I have found my sea cave and I was role-playing. It was fantastic. I was there by myself. And then at one point, while playing right up the top end of the sea cave, a wave came right up near my feet. And I turned around and realized I've been playing in here for an hour. The tide has come right in. Classic sea cave play. The en- the entrance to the sea cave was now completely cut off. It's a metre underwater, big waves crashing in. The sea cave in, had become sea. And there was a tiny hole right up the top of the cavern, back on dry land, and I had to walk as a seven-year-old, climb up this rock face. And I remember it being the scariest thing I've ever done and getting halfway. And you know when you can't go forward, you can't go back because you're going to slip. And just thinking this was not a good decision. And you learned nothing from that experience. I have never been inside a sea cave again, Marty. I learned plenty from that. I've got another one. When um, when we were at uni, I think, about that time, my folks were in Europe on holidays and me and my little brother <laughs> was still at home. What'd you have and for he dinner? Was, he was steak every day, but he was um, for breakfast and dinner. Mum gave us like 50 bucks a week or something, 100 bucks a week. It was a lot back then. And like these to, folks decided that they were going to eat nothing but meat. So we we blew all our money on bread, steak, and eggs. <laughs> we had steak sandwiches for breakfast and steak sandwiches for dinner for two weeks. 
But there was there was one one of those days because my little bro was in grade eleven or twelve, but he was pretty. He looked big. like he was twenty five. Yeah, he was pretty big. So we went to the casino one one night, and well, let's just say when Dad got back and found, I got in a lot of trouble for that. <laughs> no. I, I didn't feel like it was unjust because I felt like I deserved it. <laughs> in this episode, we're going to be talking about what is the church. But it probably is good to start with the controversies on the times when either the church has got in trouble or you have those moments where you get in trouble and you're going, not my fault, wasn't me. So there's plenty of controversies that the church has either battled through or been battered with. And then we'll get on to actually talking about what the church actually is. But I think we need to deal with some of these. Because I'll be honest, when I did the, the walk, I had to actually stop introducing myself as Catholic. In most, Unless the person was Catholic. If they were another denomination or ecclesial movement, I couldn't introduce myself as Catholic. There was so much anger built up just with that word that it became this enormous blockage. People couldn't hear the message that came after it. They just wanted to fight or get angry at me. There's a Costa Rican Christian. What are you going to say, Marty? Well, so that happened to me the other, just a few weeks back. I had a, a, a quiz kind of thing in a pub, and the question was about the... Um the Swiss Guards uniform, who in, who designed a Swiss Guards uniform, which was Michelangelo, I believe. Really? I got it right. Anyway, I'm sure I could guess it again and get it right. I'm going to say Michelangelo. And one of the ladies with us said, well, who's the Swiss Guards? So Swiss Guards, Swiss Guards, Swiss Guards, you know, defends the Pope, you know, 400 years ago, the Swiss promised that they defend the Pope. And she said, oh, do they know what the Pope has done? I thought to myself, what's the Pope done to you? <laughs> anyway, we, we didn't sort of go into it any further, but... I had a, a guy in Costa Rica, a Christian. So halfway through a day, stopped to get some lunch. He owned a little... This is an American guy living in Costa Rica. He owned a little highway cafe, basically. Middle of nowhere, a little shack, basically, under uh, coconut palms. Went in there, had a bit of a chat, and he asked me why I was walking. I said, I'm walking around the world praying for the unity of the church. And he said, ah, we need this, Great. He said, you know, particularly here in Costa Rica, you've got to get into those Catholic churches. It's those Catholics that are the problem. And he just launched for a couple of minutes on, on why the Catholics were the problem. And I didn't have the heart at the end of it to say, yeah, I'm one of them. Because he, we had this great conversation going about unity and working towards it. But his whole take on it was, it's just you, Catholic. it's just the Catholics that are the problem, not realizing that <clears throat> that was me. Uh, in... So it was a little bit later on in Guatemala, I stopped at a Pentecostal church, introduced myself to the minister, and in Spanish invited him to pray for complete unity. And he just looked at me and said in Spanish, where do you go to church? Now that sent alarm bells going. I was 5,000 k's into the journey. I know what that question means. I said to him, I'm Catholic. And he just said, ah, let's get religious then. Reaches out, grabs him by the shirt collar, reached me to the ground, calls his mate over, and the two of them, while pushing my face into the dirt, prayed what I think was a prayer of exorcism over me, before eventually releasing me and backing away from me, nodding their heads at me as if to say, you're welcome, we just saved you. Be free, little one. It was this great, it was really difficult just to even say to someone, I am Catholic. And a lot of people, I just bluntly refuse until they accepted to pray for unity, then I'd tell them. Then we can have that discussion. Because that's what it hinged on for people. I will receive your invitation if you are 
a Christian I accept, and if you are not, I'll, re I'll reject the invitation. It was really difficult. The Catholic Church carried with it a reputation, and a lot of the time it has carried a reputation that either is deserving, a lot of the time very undeserving. And I think this is where, I mean, the, the truth is we, we carry a lot of baggage, and most of it's not very good. But a big part of that is because the Catholic Church has been around for so long. Like, we've been around longer than any other empire, any other religion. Well, in terms of, like, institutional religion. Yeah, the Romans are gone. Yeah, the Romans are gone. The Greeks are gone. Um, Coca-Cola was only invented 100 years ago. Exactly. <laughs> like, 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 to a large degree, most other groups, they all stuff up, but then they close down, they reinvent themselves, or they rebrand. The church, the, the whole idea that we are a family means that we're lumped with all of our family baggage good and bad like you can't get away from it but i think the whole thing is that the church doesn't hide from that you know we we acknowledge it a lot of it's misunderstood like you say a lot of these controversies but you know we are at the same time we say look there's a lot of times where we did stuff up mm. okay lock and load let's go pick your favorite crusades crusades so okay so people say you know the church is bad because they did the crusades which i just think is a real oversimplification of the situation where you know, the Christian kings of Europe fundamentally put together armies to go and try and defend the Christians who were in the Holy Land getting slaughtered. You know, it's really a bit more defensive than offensive, the way it's sort of thought of. But, but then I think what's also not added into that was the number of people who joined the Crusades who were outside the original army, but joined it for their own purposes along the way. Well, so, yeah, with, with a lot of these things, they, they, they started for good and good motivations and then sort of end with bad motivations. Mm. When we talk about the Crusades, we're talking about a number of different battles spread over centuries. You know, there, there, was a, there was a number of different campaigns for various different reasons. The early ones were very much about defending Christians who were being slaughtered in the Holy Land. Uh, later on, the, some of the motivations became a bit more, you know, compromised, let's say. Mm. So once again, there's good and bad in that. Most of it was, was you know, called for by the Pope because obviously the Pope is aware of the needs of the churches in the Middle East. Uh, they were crying for help. They were saying, look, somebody help us. Strange thing, the, the Crusades actually originally started because of people pilgrimaging to the Holy Land. So long history that people would uh, go to confession. So if you were like a, you know, a murderer or something, as your penance, you'd be asked to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It would take about two or three years. There's a good chance you'd probably die along the way. Like it was, it was actually a pretty serious penance. But what you found was that a lot of these pilgrimage groups started getting attacked by armed bandits along the highways. And so as a way of defending or protecting the pilgrims, because obviously you don't want to send someone to their death, they would have armed pilgrimages. So they would have a couple of armed men travel with the group along the way through some of these dangerous areas. So that's pretty much where the Crusades began. The, the, the first real crusade, being like a whole army, being amassed a to go to the Holy Land, was after a lot of the, you know, the spread of Islam into areas which were originally Christian and people were being killed or forced into conversion. And so it was the Pope saying, look, we actually need to defend these people because they're our people, you know, and this, this is actually their land. Often the Crusades are interpreted as being a whole colonizing thing because they assume that Christianity is a European religion, whereas it actually started in the Middle East. And so these are areas which had been Christian for five or 600 years already. But as we say, like, like there was a number of different Crusades or battles. 
some of them, some particularly the later ones, they were less wholesome, let's say, mm. put it that way. Money and power got In into the... intention and execution. Yeah, money and power got into the mix of it, and there was a lot of dodgy stuff. But as with a lot of these controversies, the history is a whole lot more nuanced than people like to say it is. That people like to simplify it down as, you know, bad church versus good other, everyone else. Mm. Well, the one that flows on from that, Inquisition. We shall be honest, I know stuff all about it. I hear little random tidbits here and there, mm. but I actually don't know that much about it. And I've heard different, I've heard explanations that have put it in some sort of perspective. But you know, what at the pub, like, like, oh, come on, oh, go back, podcasts. go back to the Spanish Inquisition. The church was killing people left, right, and centre. So I think once again, you're dealing with uh, a, a long, complicated history. It's it's hard to s- summarise these things down to you know one event. People always talk about the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, they're famous particularly because of the famous Monty Python skit, which you, if you do not know about <laughs> it, you need to check on YouTube. The The basic idea was that, if I put it into a historical context, at that time you had a whole bunch of different religious groups and heresies rising up. And a lot of these were pretty dangerous. In a previous episode, we were talking in passing about uh, Albigensianism, which was very big around France and Spain. And it was actually quite a dangerous religious belief. It believed this idea that everything spiritual is good, everything physical is bad. And so the way to holiness involves committing suicide because you want to free your soul from your body. Um, Now, if anyone in in the modern world came along preaching something like that, we would probably use the power of the government to shut them down. We would would have an Australian Inquisition. Well, a royal commission or something, you know, to investigate who who is making money off this, who is getting, you know, promoting it. In a sense, it was the same sort of thing. People recognised there are religious beliefs here which someone has just dreamed up and it's doing a lot of damage. So the church was trying to crack down on that. They were trying to understand, you know, what ideas are dangerous to people and what aren't. Now... The, the problem was that at the same time, you had a very religious world. And so the governments were trying to keep these things in check for the sake of keeping their nations united. The, the biggest source of division in a country was around religion. Uh, and so this is where the government would then step in and say, we're going to kill all these people who are deemed as being heretics. So, so this is where it became complicated that the church was doing something which, which for, for its sake was trying to protect people and try to actually say, look, some of these ideas are really dangerous. But then it got mixed again with power and money and control and the government would come in and do a lot of the killing. So, so there were a lot of people killed in the time of the Inquisitions. Now, at the same time, to realise that this was different for every nation. So some of the countries, like the Spanish Inquisition, uh, were famous for killing a lot of people. Whereas in other countries, it was just a theological inquiry and nothing really happened. So it's hard to have like a universal judgment across the whole of the church. Because, yeah, every, every country was responding to this stuff differently. Wow. There you go. I'll let you read a book on that. I'll get under it. All right. I want to bring, out, bring on one that, that also ties in with government, which is very modern, that being abortion. Uh, something that the church is often lambasted for, for its stand on this and taking away a particular choice that people have, which is it's one thing I've never actually understood that as a defence because everything we do is a choice and we have plenty of choices that, that are illegal and plenty of choices that are legal and other choices that are 
neither illegal or legal, but they are deemed as virtuous or or selfish. You know, everything is a choice, and there are certain ramifications for those choices. But it's funny. I heard someone describe it recently as we afford human rights to people who've been born, but we have decided not to afford human rights to people who have not been born. It used to be a case of it is just a bunch of cells, but that was very much a 19, even a 1920s into 1940s kind of mentality. But the science doesn't support that. It does not support that, no, in that we now know that, well, everything's a bunch of cells anyway, but it's got another name. We describe it, but that an unborn child has its own DNA. Unique. It's unique DNA. It has its own chromosomes. In fact, can have a different number of chromosomes to its parent, uh, its own blood. Uh, if the if the mother feels pain, the child doesn't. If the child feels pain, the mother doesn't. It's its own life. By every definition of life, it is its own life. But we don't afford it human rights. Uh, and the church believes that God has knitted us. What's that particular verse? Isaiah. Isaiah or Joshua? There's a couple of passages in the Old Testament which talk about that. In it. Uh, Psalm 139 talks about, you know, when I formed you in the womb, you know, mm. like, knitted you together in my mother's womb and again when god says even if a mother should forget her own child within mm. her i'll never forget you in isaiah isaiah and then of course we've got our lady of guadalupe if you haven't please listen if you haven't read anything on our lady of guadalupe highly highly recommended i found it absolutely gobsmacking it was amazing and lourdes and fatima as well but um, i was able to travel through our lady of guadalupe been there and went back there once on pilgrimage as well. But Our Lady of Guadalupe was, because in Mexico at the time, they used to sacrifice to their gods or to the sun god. And uh, the Spanish, was it Cortez? Yeah. Who came in and started to try to stop the sacrifice. Uh, and then Our Lady of Guadalupe, who appeared to St. Juan Diego. And there was, there's a lot to the story, but at its core, Stop the sacrifice. My son has sacrificed himself for all people. Uh, the sacrifice has been made. Stop sacrificing others. And th- there is genuinely a choice there. But So I just think that's really quite a simple equation, really. Like, you've got a life form that is human parent, and it's growing, so it's a human life. And the only other thing is, can you ever justify that it's okay for big, strong people to kill weak, small innocent people and the church says that both are loved so getting back to this whole thing of church controversies where this is a little bit different to the other ones in that in the the other examples we gave it was where the church was involved in something which was good and became sort of messed up you know and so we could say okay the church sinned where on this this occasion the church has the church has stepped into a battle which has made the church very unpopular and it's very much seen as being a catholic thing you know, they, you'll always see people with their, with their rosaries praying outside abortion clinics. I suppose that the question here is, okay, why is the church stepping into such a controversial area? What this really comes down to is a battle which is about much more than just abortion. Um, and I think this is what a lot of Catholics need to sort of, sort of understand. Because we look at this and say, okay, well, scientifically, it's a child, it's a human being. What's the problem? This, this really sort of steps into a whole battle around worldviews. That a couple of things. You got the sexual revolution, which basically was at a time where people said, okay, look, we don't know whether God exists. We don't know whether there is life after death. All we do know is that we've got to enjoy our time here on earth. And we need to facilitate that however we can. Hiddenism. 
Well, it, it, it's actually Sigmund Freud. Um, Sigmund Freud who said that the, there, there is no meaning to life. Life is simply the yield and, and promotion of pleasure. And so we should allow that. And so that's pretty much the world that created the sexual revolution. And so we're saying, well, look, the, the only joy that there is in life is sex. So that should be allowed. Nothing should be able to get in the way of that. Now, that's, that's one part of the equation. Another side to this is very much the whole thing around liberation of women. And, and this is where the church is seen to be evil in this regard because the church is run by men. And so, and so that, that's where it sort of becomes like this black and white argument where, you know, all these celibate men in the, Va- in the Vatican are creating rules that are oppressing women. But once again, it's more than that. It's, it's about a whole understanding of who we are as human beings. You know, so the, the Catholic worldview would say that actually that there are many times where we are limited by our biology. Our body, our biology does limit our freedom and we need to get used to that. Whereas this is coming very much from a philosophy but very much influenced by people like Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, who was saying that in, in no way should you ever be limited by your existence, you know, like, like your internal essence, like who you want to be, should be able to be free from all those biological limitations. And so this is pretty much the whole idea that, that drove the whole idea of contraception, mm-hmm. particularly for women. Like, well, that's, if, a whole, that's a whole other controversy in itself, isn't it? That, it that, is. that sex has a purpose. Yeah. But the, the idea that like you, you want to have a career, you want to follow your dreams and travel, but getting pregnant is really awkward because it's going to lock you down for the next you know, 20, 30 years. And so it's very much around freedom, but it's, it's almost like freedom from your own biological limitations or, or, or the things that could restrict you. Mm. And, and all of that stuff's in the background to this argument. So when the church is trying to say we need to respect life, what people are actually hearing is the church is trying to restrict freedom. Uh, and I think this is where Catholics need to try and almost get into the mindset of the rest of the world before we can even discuss this, because people know that it's a human being. People know that there is a child being killed, and yet they still choose to have an abortion because they're fighting for a good or something that, that they believe is good and worth it. I was reading an article in the Financial Review couple of months back it was a it was a short story about a woman having an abortion it was written from her own perspective and it fascinated me because she was trying to she was explaining everything that she actually understood she knew that it was wrong she knew it was a human being and yet she still chose to have the abortion and i i personally couldn't get my head around it but i I had to sort of realize in her mind this makes sense like she's not doing this because she's evil she's doing this because in her hierarchy of values there is something else that trumps this mm. and and I, and I think this is where the clash comes that, that we're actually two vastly different cultures trying to have an argument and we're not making sense yeah as a church we, we we believe very strongly in what we're defending but we actually need to almost step into the other worldview enough to understand what they're trying to defend yeah. and somehow then meet the discussion which we'll come back to in a moment we talk about what the church is meant to be Mm. what the church actually is as family. Any other controversy you want to throw out there? Big one we are talking about before was Galileo. 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 <laughs> Most Galileo people only Figaro. know the song and the fact that somehow <laughs> the church is therefore anti-science. So, so Galileo was a scientist who believed that he'd worked out how planets and stars moved around the sun. And the basic story is that the church shut him down and said, this is against what this says in the Bible, therefore you're not allowed to teach it. And so, so this is the way it's presented. I actually wrote that in a project in grade eight. Okay. 
Yeah, it's but the... I don't, I don't, my, my very limited research at the time, I don't, I don't agree with... Did your teacher agree with what you wrote? I got a good mark, yeah. but yeah. probably because of the picture I put on the front. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, the classic, it's a classic argument. You know, the church told Galileo to stop publishing his stuff, therefore the church hates science. Um, once again, it's a much more complicated story that what the church actually did was say, you're allowed to publish it, but say that it's a hypothesis, not absolutely proven. And the reason for that was because at the time there was three or four other scientists with completely different calculations of the same thing. It was actually a very similar thing with Copernicus. You know, that Copernicus was supposedly the first person to prove that the Earth moved around the sun. But the church looked at it and said, you've got to say it's a hypothesis because we don't know whether your calculations are actually correct. And he spat the dummy and said, oh, whatever. But... Um, as it was, Galileo proved Copernicus's equations wrong, so the church was right in that. And there was a bunch of other people who proved Galileo's equations wrong. So it wasn't that they didn't believe about the earth going around the sun. It was more that he... So the, so the church was actually defending the rigour of science. Yes. <laughs> wow, that's not put forward bombshell. So the cardinal at the time, Cardinal, at schools. cardinal Robert Bellarmine, uh, was actually a very level-headed guy. There, there was a, obviously a few other hot-headed personalities around the Vatican at the time who probably said a few stupid things. But but his basic position was, we need to do our science well. You know that you know. Let's not say something is proven until it's actually proven. You know, until then it's a hypothesis. Well, it's like the number of times you hear. Sorry, it's a bit of a segue. You hear people talking about evolution being proven. Mm. And yet there is still a million dollar prize available to any scientist who can give a credible account of how inorganic matter becomes organic matter, as in how evolution could possibly eventuate. And you get those people saying, oh, it's, it's been proven. And without getting into that too much, I'm just, this is just on the, at a science level, from a scientific perspective, that we have to say, no, 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 no. There's still, the scientists are still working on this yeah. and, and no one's been able to claim the prize yet. Yeah. They're still working on this. Yeah, so, 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 a hypothesis. so the great irony is that actually the church was really the defender of the scientific method in the, in this situation. <laughs> but, the, but the very simplistic version of the story is that the, the church, church hates science. The church hates science because it contradicted the Bible. Hmm. But it, it's, it's much more complicated than that. Well, where in the Bible does it say that the earth is at the centre? Does it? Well, the, the Old Testament presents an image of how the universe would be shaped, you know, with like the dome above the heavens and... And so, so people sort of from that elaborated into this idea of how the universe would, would, would work. Ah, but it's only a hypothesis. Well, it's literature, you know, and, and, and this is where, you know, the Bible was never meant to be science. We should do another podcast on this sometime later. Yeah. To actually get into how the church understands the scriptures and, and how it has understood right from the earliest church, time of the church. So big question. What is the church? What, what is it meant to be? So we mentioned... In an earlier podcast, we touched on this very briefly about the church as a family. So I was explaining about how to, to understand the church now, you've got to understand where the whole story began. So Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony, perfect unity. They sin, division comes into the world. And that division breaks up their relationship. Their children start killing each other. You then end this, this like endless spiral of violence down through the generations. Humanity realizes that the only way they can get along is by being united in hatred, if we could put it that way. So a nation is united 
because they all have a common enemy. And, and that gets played down through religions, ideologies, modern day sporting teams, political parties. Everyone is united because they're, they're in competition and, and they almost need each other for the sake of, you know, because they hate someone else. What Jesus comes to do is to try to undo that division. So central to the whole mission of salvation is he comes to reconcile us back with God, but then he also comes to reconcile us with each other. And so he pulls together the 12 apostles, which is the beginning of the church. And it's a classic example because these guys, I would have loved to have seen the 12 apostles, like when they were by themselves. <laughs> they would have been wanting to kill each other. So you got, say, you're Simon the Zealot. So, so the Zealots were a particular, very zealous group of... That was the guy in the picture. Sorry, Marty and I were looking at a picture last night of the Last Supper. And yeah. there was a guy that... Remember the tall guy on the right-hand yeah. side? He, he, looked, he just looked like a Jewish zealot. That's who that was. Who was okay. that? Simon. So Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. That the was Simon. other Simon. The, so, so the whole idea, that the Zealots wanted to get rid of anyone who was corrupted with the Roman Empire. So anyone who had done a deal with Rome to make money out of their occupation, they later on, they would, you know, walk up behind people with sharp knives and just stab them in the street. So you've got Simon the Zealot sitting next to Matthew the tax collector, who was one of the guys who was corrupted <laughs> with the Roman Empire. And I would love to have seen, <laughs> did Jesus take the knives away from the table when they were sitting next to each other? But and then you got James and John, the brothers in between them, just being Probably loud land, and loud thunderous. <laughs> but it, it becomes an image of us, how Jesus just gathers these completely diverse people who should not get along well with each other. And he says, you're now brothers. And, and, then, he, and then the church grows. and He's like, okay, you're now family. Across all national, racial, you know, ethnic groupings, you're all now lumped together. And so really, this is the heart of what the church is. Like the church is meant to be a family, which... Is it's integral to our salvation because it forces us to learn how to love. Like, like we have to love people who we naturally would not love. Mm. I remember hearing years ago a talk by an archbishop from South Africa, and he was talking about when the apartheid era was in South Africa, where there was divisions between blacks and whites and separate churches for blacks and separate churches for whites. And the Catholic Church very early on said, not, a, not in our place. So they had no segregation at all. And they said, as, long, as soon as you walk into this church, everyone's family. Blacks sit next to whites. There is no distinction at all. And there was, there was a significant reaction from some Catholics, but also from the government, because it was a massive challenge to the whole ideology. But they were very clear, saying, this is what Christ came to do. He came to bring us together and break down all divisions. Now, the church has succeeded at sometimes doing that. Other times we've failed terribly. But, but that's really what Christ was trying to do by creating the church. Marty, can I ask you, as a, as a non-priest, as a married man, what do you love? That, that I am. What, a non-priest. A non-priest, married <laughs> By man. virtue of your baptism, you're a priest. But anyway, that's a whole <laughs> Melchizedek. <laughs> what do you love about the church? You've got, you got a family, and I can imagine, so you've got three children, two teens, one, well, acts like a teen, but he's only, how old is she, seven? Uh, I'm going to say eight. I know how to find out. <laughs> Text your wife. I can imagine that getting to mass sometimes can be... Getting to mass can be a challenge. Yeah. 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 What do you like? What do you love about the church? What do I love about the church? I love 
the fact that despite any of these difficulties, that Jesus is in the centre of every Catholic church in the tabernacle. And regardless of any parish council politics or whatever, Jesus is present in that church. I love Eucharistic adoration. I love the sacraments. I just, you know, my perspective is not only does the church promise you more than any other entity or religion, it also gives you everything you need along the way to get to that destination. Somewhat imperfectly at times, but, you know, it, it's all there. The, the heavenly promises, Jesus' heavenly promises as articulated by the church are beyond any other religion. You know, to be living for eternity within the Trinity. It still blows my mind that God chooses to be present in our midst in the form of bread mm. and wine and come and eat. Come and eat me. Yeah. That's what he says. Actually, I love my, my favorite scripture. Actually, I'm going to pin you. Favorite scripture passage. My favorite's uh, John 21 on the beach, Lake Tiberius. Jesus appears to the disciples for the, think, the third time. And. They're out fishing, they've, and it looks like they've had dinner together, and at the end of the night, Peter said, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples, and he's talking before about how different these guys were, these guys have got no idea how to fish, most likely. Some of them do, they're fishermen, others don't. The tax collector doesn't. He wouldn't. So, you know, they, they, but they all say, we're coming with you. And they go out fishing for the night. But they come back in the morning, they haven't caught anything, and Jesus is on the edge of the lake, and he yells out to them, <laughs> Haven't you caught anything, friends? To which they reply, no. Uh, that sense of who is this almost goose on the edge of the lake yelling this out to us, go away. And then he says to them, throw your nets out the starboard. And they do and get this huge hauler. And it's then that, that John realises it's the Lord. That's Jesus. Peter jumps out of the boat goes ashore, uh, the others haul in the fish and, and come ashore in the boat. And they're having a, a barbecue. Jesus has cooked a barbecue for them. And he says to the disciples, come and eat. Come and have breakfast. And I love, and there's obviously a lot that follows from there. There's some very, very significant moments in that breakfast and what's said. But I love that after all that's said and done, Jesus says, come and eat. Mm. Come and have a meal. Come and sit with me. I love that. I genuinely love that about the the church that Jesus still says, come and eat, and that we end, we end up sitting beside people. I was thinking about this this morning when we were in Mass. I looked up at communion and thought, gee, there's some diverse people here. <laughs> it was not in a judgmental way, just, gee, there's some different characters here today. I remember when I was studying uh, theology, the this image that really struck me, where they were talking about the... The church is a little bit like a human being in that, like, like you look at a human being and you see the body, you can't see the soul. Uh, and, and the human body's got all sorts of imperfections. You might be fat, thin, ugly, whatever, I don't know, skin problems. And or, yet, or, or combination thereof. Whole range, yeah. But, but you, you can't actually see the soul that animates that body. And, and they were saying, when you look at the church, it's a similar thing. Like, like you see the body with all of its imperfections. And, mm. and when you go back to the controversies, that's what people look at. They think, okay, there's a bunch of really sinful people here. How can this actually be a holy thing? But what we can't see is the soul of the church, which is the Holy Spirit. You know, and what we can see is the effect of that, that spirit in the heart of the church. The fact that despite all of our sin and brokenness and mess, the church has not failed. 
you know, like we we're saying before, that it's it's probably the one institution which has lasted longer than anything else. Because Jesus hasn't given up on us and keeps rebuking us and correcting us. Yeah, and because it, it's this human and divine reality, like like very often the the media will focus very much on the humanity, like you know the sins of the church, the the problems of the church. But when we look at the saints, that's where you see the soul of the church coming out. You know, mm. that you see people doing these amazing things. And despite our best efforts, we, like, it, it left to ourselves, we should have stuffed the church up a long time ago. Mm. I remember hearing there's a, a, a quote which is reportedly, no one actually knows exactly whether it was said or not, when Napoleon uh, took Pope Pius VII, into captivity reportedly napoleon said to the pope i intend to destroy the catholic church oh no he was talking to the pope's secretary of state this guy cardinal consalvi he, he said to the cardinal he said i intend to destroy the catholic church and the cardinal basically said look emperor we've been trying to destroy the catholic church for centuries and we haven't <laughs> succeeded so you're not going to be able to do it either like i mean he was just trying to say like, like look at the sins of the clergy we haven't succeeded in destroying it, you're not going to be able to do it either. <laughs> like, so there's something in the heart of it which is keeping it going, and that's Christ. Yeah. I know that you and I share one of our favourite saints, St. Saint Francis of Assisi, and the first time I read St. Francis's story, I picked it because I had to do a school project, and I picked it because I lived on a farm, and I thought, oh, he liked animals, you know, I'll pick him. Mm. And then read his story, and what just hit me between the eyes was that I read the story of someone who lived the gospel. And it was the first time because I didn't, and I know that you see that in different forms in our world around us, but to actually see that and to see that flicker of light every now and then in the saints, in the lives of the saints. And I have, I'll be honest, I have a framed photograph next to my bed of St. You've Ter got a photograph of St. Francis of Assisi? Of St. Therese of Lisieux next to my bed. That's much more plausible. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are certain saints who enliven us and, and I think well in up as a, a hope for this is what we're here for. You went on, Father Dave, I'm going to point the finger at you. You went on a few years He's ago pointing. at the church. Are we, are we actually ready for what we say we want to do? As in the church being a hospital, but we don't have the rooms. Mm. So... Part of the, the thing is that, you know, we, we talk big, but we don't necessarily match what we say, you know. And, and I think this is the tension that, that we've got this desire within us, which is to live the gospel. But then when we actually step out and try and live it, we're like, oh, we're not quite ready for that yet. You know, we, we often say we want to, we want the whole so Lord Augustine, to be... Oh, Lord, make me holy. No, pure. But just, not yet. Just not yet. Yeah. You know, so, so the classic thing you'll hear in a church is people say, Lord, convert the whole world. We're not ready for that yet. You know, if, if, if the whole world suddenly came to your Sunday, par par your, your mass on Sunday, you wouldn't find a parking spot. You know, you wouldn't get your favorite pew in the church. You know, like everything would change overnight. And there's, there's no one running the RCIA program anymore. Yeah, we haven't got people ready yet to care for those people. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so there's, there's that constant tension between the ideal of what we feel the Spirit calling us to do. But then the reality, which is actually we're still a bunch of weak and broken people who really are trying the best we can, but we're not quite there yet. Mm. Um, and and that, that's the church. It's messy. It's like family. But it's, it's family on a 2,000-year scale where we've got a lot of skeletons in the closet and a lot of bad history. One of you was telling me recently about, I can't remember which one it was, about a, uh, some letters that have been uncovered recently archaeologically. Uh, it was a Roman, Roman soldier 
who was, I think, in Turkey or Greece and was writing the letters home to his wife and child. You're both looking stumped. Is there anyone else you talk to? I talk, must talk to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't me. Okay. I didn't pick up in any of that what your favourite scripture verse was. <laughs> I, I wasn't actually asked. I, I, what's your favourite scripture verse? There you go. You were. <laughs> there are many scriptures that I like. If I was to give a favourite, I'd say Job chapter 28, which you actually have to hear. Where is he at that point? Well, it's the, the end? it's got nothing to do with Job at all. It's the interlude. It's like the toilet break in the middle of the book of Job. And it's a little bit about where is wisdom to be found. Yeah, pretty much. It's got that music in the background. <laughs> it's, it's the interlude to the book of Job. Um, no, it's a, it's an image of where is wisdom to be found. Writing that it down, uses this idea of, of people mining, looking for gold in the heart of a mountain. It just, it, it was a scripture which struck me when I was, when I first joined Consecrated Life. And I felt it spoke something very much about what our quest is to seek the heart of Christ and to enter into solitude to find that true wisdom. Mm. Beautiful. I'll, um, I'll grab my Bible. I'm going to read it, it at some point. Well, I'm looking at it right now, so I'll hand it to you afterwards. Marty, what's your favorite scripture verse? Revelation 12, and a great sign appeared in the heaven. A woman clothed in the sun, standing on the moon with a crown of 12 stars around her head, and she was in labor. Bit, bit I'm, pa- I'm paraphrasing bit, a bit slightly. It's a big story from there, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It keeps going. But you'll have to read it. There you go. So, John chapter 21, Job at 28. Revelation 12. Revelation 12. Revelation 12. Nice. Thou found it, Father Dave. Mm. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. And so forth. The whole chapter. Beautiful. Okay, I'll read that afterwards once we finish here. Now, I was talking about something. A Roman guy, a Roman soldier. Mm. Can uh, you remember anything yeah, yeah, else yeah, yeah. about No, who? no, I do. I just thought it was one of you guys who told me. And so I was going to get you to tell the story probably. But I'll, <laughs> do you have to tell the story? I'll, relay, so I'll tell it. I'll tell it. <laughs> I'll relay it. <laughs> so this is just recently, archaeologists found a letter written to a wife and daughter, I think, from a Roman soldier who was in Greece or Turkey. And in this letter, it's from the first century. And he's saying to them, I understand economically prostitution. I understand slavery. I understand how you make money from these transactions. But he said, there is a group here who call themselves Christians. And I can't yet figure out how they can make their money because they go around picking up the orphans and the sick. And it is confusing me as to how they make money from this. And then he goes on. That's it. It's just in the middle of his letter to his wife. It's his first encounter with the church. And it's just setting him a confusion. Why are they doing this? Mm. How are you making money from this? Because that was the world at that time was you'd only pick up someone like this if you were able to make money from them in some way but he's he's seeing something time, it's still the world oh, yeah. uh, it just reminded me of the uh, letter to Diognetus but it's probably too complicated to explain it was one, one of the earliest explanations of the church but oh. okay so gentlemen can I give you a bit of a wrap up question here for today's podcast on the church that being that can we just have a relationship with God without organised religion oh to be spiritual without being religious yes 
Yeah, I have a very strong, my, my answer to this is no, because that's what we are called to. It's, it's a little bit like saying, can I be a part of the family without being part of the family? Mm. In a very abbreviated sense, but... Well, let's say, um, I've got to work out what I was going to say. I had a thought. So, Dave. Oh, Marty, so, you're in. <laughs> if you've met Jesus and you want a relationship with Jesus, why would you want that relationship to look different to the way he'd like that relationship to look? That's why he established a church. So, and, well, it's also within the what you might call in inverted commas organised church. Within the organised church are the actual gifts that God has blessed the church with, that there is a that stream of grace through the church. Well, like the sacraments. The sacraments, the actual encounter with God, the opportunity to not just pray, and I mean that, not just pray, but actually encounter, receive God in a very substantial, tangible way through those sacraments. I think we're just you're cutting yourself short, really. I just think there's something so much more beautiful. It's, the, it's such an amazing thing to have that relationship with God. To give a bit of a theology answer to it, I think... Thank goodness you're here. <laughs> I just hope I'm not being heretical here. Two questions you've got to ask to that question is, firstly, what actually is salvation? So as I was saying before, the, the simplistic understanding of salvation is Jesus died for me on the cross. I've now got a ticket to heaven. Sweet. Done deal. I don't need to talk to anybody ever again. Mm. Whereas the Catholic understanding of salvation is God undoing all the effects of sin that happened in the Garden of Eden. So not only I am saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. Yeah. So the original sin in the Garden of Eden broke our relationship with God, but it also broke our relationship with each other and our relationship with ourselves. And so the cross heals that relationship with God, but the church is integral to then teaching me how to love. So it, it unites me back with humanity. So in a sense, the church is like a spiritual boot camp where I'm learning how to love and I, and I need to become love. So, so you should not just find a church with people you like. You should almost intentionally find a church with people you don't get along with because that's going to teach you how to love better. Like if you actually understand it as a training ground for love. The other side of this is actually what is the purpose of religion mm. is... We, we, we live in an age which is filled with individualism, okay? It's just me and God. Whereas the actual heart of the mystery of the Bible is this Trinitarian relationship, which is kind of hard to explain and hard to understand, but it's God the Son loving God the Father. And to actually understand the Catholic understanding of the Mass, it's that the, the, the Eucharistic prayer, like it, it, what we pray in the Mass, is actually Jesus loving God the Father and worshipping God the Father. And we as a church are part of that prayer as the body of Christ. Mm. Once again, complicated theology, hard to summarize in 30 seconds, but we always talk about the priest standing in the person of Christ as the head of the church, but all the lay people are in the church as the body of Christ. And, and the, together they are Christ offering up this most perfect sacrifice of prayer, which none of us could offer individually back at home. Like there's something about going to church where we actually become something different. We, we become Christ in that place. And that's where the most perfect prayer is offered to God. And so that's why I need to go to church. Like I, I need to pray at home, but I also need to be at church because that's where I become part of the body. It becomes a really, really important to get a good definition of what religion is. Yes. Because you get these, all these very broad 
definitions of and religion. very negative. Well, also people who put superstition under religion, mm. that to have superstitious beliefs and to do something because you are superstitious is religious. Yeah, well, most, most, you know... Oh, there are a lot thousands of, of world religions. Like almost all of them are the superstitions of polytheism. And then you have, and they are the superstitions. That, that difference of Jesus actually, or God becoming one of us, God incarnate, and asking us to follow. But it basically presumes that the ritual was created by human beings, mm. and. The presumption is that if we just strip away all the human-created ritual, we get back to something which is purely spiritual. Now, the church would say that misses the fact that we're actually human beings. Like, if we were angels, we could worship purely in spirit. Um, and it's, it, it kind of takes that line from John, John's Gospel where he says, you know, people will worship in spirit and truth. But it takes that line and then applies it to situations which it doesn't actually apply to. Whereas actually... God wants us to worship physically, bodily. You know, the same way that we love each other through physical symbols, we encounter God through physical symbols and and we need to worship physically. And and that's really what religion's about. It's it's a physical, bodily worship, not some disembodied spiritual thing, which, you know, which I think is what people are getting. Jesus gave us that template too. Hmm. He gave us the template of, of how to worship. Yeah. And how to live out that, that family life, as you put it, yes. within the church. Yeah. So it's, it's great. You were reminded of a scripture passage. I was reminded of a meme, which is Jesus saying, okay, I'm going to start again. You let me know where, you, where I lose you. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we conclude with a prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift of the church, for the gift of your love, and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that uh, we are guided, that we are purified, uh, that you never take your eyes off us as we are purified. We pray, Lord God, that you'll continue to draw us deeper into your love and to bless us with great courage in carrying your love to those around us, uh, to both those within the church and those outside the church to be courageous and loving in the way that we invite them to meet you. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. And Lord, we just pray you pray your spirit upon us and bless us all in the, name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We are Sons of Thunder. We'll see you for episode six. Ciao, ciao. Dun 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 d